Nice to see someone caught in the act, just drinking a little bit. Good evening, everyone, and uh, welcome to our Facebook Live discussion brought to you by Vectorical Teleneurology. Um, it's fantastic to see so many of you joining us from all over uh, the world. We have people from uh, Brazil, Canada, um, I've seen Egypt. We've got people as well from Russia and uh, um, other parts of the world. So thanks a lot for joining us. We have a, a great speaker and a great topic tonight. Um, if you know it's the first time you join us, um, we will we've prepared some question um, to ask to our speaker, who is Louis Clark. And at the end of this um, Q and A, you can uh, put your question to Louis, and I'd be delighted to uh, uh, put this question forward for you, for Louis to answer. Um, but leave me to introduce our speaker tonight. Louis Clark. Louis is a very old friend of Simon and I. Um, we've been working together probably, I think, 19, 18 years ago, it must be now. Um, and only 18 months ago, Louis and I, we parted, you know, uh, road. Um, but yeah, for a very long time, um, we've been working together. And I can tell you, she's a fantastic um, anesthetist, definitely a safe pair of hands when you have to do a complex surgery. Louis is currently um, head of anesthesia at Davis Veterinary Specialist in the UK. Um, she is a diplomate of the European College of Veterinary Anesthesia and Analgesia. And she's also uh, president of the section Pemedicine of the Royal Society of, of Medicine. Um, tonight, um, Louise is going to talk to us about problem solving in neuroanesthesia. Um, Simon will ask a number of questions. And in the meantime, feel free to put in the comment box any question you may have for Louise. But leave me. Um, to leave the, the, the mic to Simon to start um, with his Q&A. Simon, I hope you're doing well. Yep, thank you. Thank you very much. Oh, I think Simon? I... I um... Did you, can you hear me? Because I lost your last few uh, words. If it was a joke, I missed. Sorry, <laughs> the old time. I was I getting. Can't hear you. Oh God! Hang on! Hang on! I think we can hear you. You can start, Simon. All fine. All right. Can I hear you? Yeah, I can hear you, Simon. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. I, I can't hear you. I'm, but I'm going to ask the first question, and then I'm going to sort that out. So, Louise, welcome. Um, thank you very much for coming. Um, it is a great honor to have you, and a pleasure to see you again after all this time. One of our youngest friends, I'd have to say. Absolutely. Um, and um, it, it's going to be an interesting little session, because Laurent wants to know if there's been any progress since chloroform um, for just knocking out his patients. So, um, uh, so let's get started. And our first question is, uh, which cases really are, are the ones that we should be worried about and why? Um, uh, Laurent used to think that if they got off the table alive, that was a success. Um, so uh, is, there, is there something more we should be worried about? Well, 
Thanks for the introduction, Simon. Um, yeah, it's been difficult working without you, having to work with Laurent for 17 years. You can imagine there's been some problem solving going on. Um, but yeah, it shows a bit of a kind of a, a bit of a graduation back in the 20th century, that sort of attitude. But um, I guess if we look at it from a bigger perspective, there's quite a lot of information from human practice that actually shows that the type of anesthesia that you undergo can really affect your long-term outcome. Um, this is really important in um, cancer surgery, and that includes neurocancer surgery. Um, there's a lot of evidence that um, inhalational anesthesia and opioids give poorer long-term outcomes with more tumor recurrence, and things like propofol teva or locals um, give a protective effect. So that's major stuff. That's really making people making decisions about how anesthesia is actually going to affect long-term mortality, not just tomorrow. In addition to that, and um, there's quite a lot of evidence of things like excess anesthetic debt, low mean arterial pressures, and we're not talking real hypotension, we're talking less than 75 millimeters of mercury, and the requirement for not much drugs. Um, that shows a really bad 30-day mortality in people. So, you know, these are things that we have, we don't have much data on in dogs as yet. But, you know, taking it back to the practicals, if you bring in a case for a diagnostic procedure, as much as all neurologists love MRI, it's diagnostic, it's not therapeutic. What you don't want is a bad anaesthetic making what was a stable patient considerably worse. You know, that doesn't do anything for anybody. So hence, I guess we worry about all patients, but some more than others. And um, why have you highlighted um, or focused on comorbidity on this slide? Well, Laurent's only given me 20 minutes to talk and he knows that I can waffle forever. So I thought comorbidity was something that um, neurologists don't worry about. You know, it's got a nervous system. Somebody else can worry about the rest of it. But lots of you <laughs> have been to the two brilliant talks that Chris Ogrenu did on um, uh, caudal cervical spondylomyelopathy and the, the excellent talk on pugs and I just thought well and their thoracolumbar myelopathies I thought both of those are patients or groups of patients that for me as an anaesthetist have got pretty significant comorbidities you know the pugs are also brachycephalic and you know they're high risk of regurg etc the Dobermans have DCM, they've got von Willebrand's disease, bleeding tendencies, they're having long surgeries. So I thought a bit of a chat about perspective and comorbidity might not be a bad idea. Laurent, could I have the next slide, please? I remember she used to be busy and she still is. <laughs> this used to be Laurent's life and it isn't anymore, but this is mine. <laughs> Friday, it's four o'clock. I have an emergency that's tetraparatic. This is the duty neurologist. It sounds like it need its head and necks, uh, its neck scanning, sorry, and maybe surgery. It's a neck, it needs something doing. Well, I'm a little bit more worried than that. Take a look at the slide. On the left, we've got, he's at, this is actually my dog, uh, sighthound, lurchery type thing. And on the right, we've got the archetypal French bulldog, one of the most popular breeds, unfortunately, in the UK, and one with a lot of neurological problems as well as significant comorbidity. So I just wanted to have a five minute chat about which of these do I worry about and why and get you as neurologists to think outside the box a bit. Do I have the next slide, please, Laurent? So bit of risk assessment here. 
I don't know much neurology, but a little bit has rubbed off. So if we look at our patient on the left, why is it presenting? It's likely, you know, this is a, a, a lurcher, it's likely an FCE or an acute non-compressive nucleus pulposus extrusion. I'm happy, it's not likely to be surgical. Nobody's gonna be cutting at midnight. From a dog perspective, these are often, they're nice dogs, they're amenable, they're very rarely aggressive. They're also canine athletes. Their cardiovascular function is actually four times that of Mo Farah's if you do the maths on it. You've got to work really hard to cause them a cardiovascular problem. They've got huge airways, massive ET tube, and they've got a pretty low incidence of relevant comorbidities. They tend to be pretty healthy dogs. And there are, they do tend to be hypertensive and there's a thromboembolic risk, but for an MRI, am I really worried? Not really. This is a big dog as well. He's around about 30 kilos. A risk of hypothermia, pretty low. What am I gonna do? Well, if it wasn't my own dog, this is a picture of my own dog, I'd be going home and letting an intern do it. This is not a high risk case to me. I've gone through the risk assessment and with any luck, this will be a quick MRI, a diagnosis and um, you know non-surgical management. The guy on the right, this is our Friday bread and butter. French Bulldog presents tetraparatic going tetraplegic. Being told it's a C1, C5 um, neurolocalization. That's telling me, even though I don't know very much, that it's likely to be surgical. It's probably traveled to us about two hours because we're a referral center. And this may apply to lots of you as well. They're prone to hypothermia and they tend to get very stressed. A lot of the cases we see are aggressive as well or not very well mannered. So we now have a patient who is hyperthermic, <coughs> potentially dyspneic, um, aggressive and can't walk. Great. In addition to that, um, most of these dogs suffer from brachycephalic obstructive airway syndrome. They are at risk of ocular ulceration and a very large proportion of them regurgitate on a regular basis, which a lot of owners frankly think is normal. They have a high incidence of hiatal hernia and a high incidence of gut disease all sounds brilliant before we start. In addition to this, this is likely surgical. So we've got surgical risk to consider. Um, depends on your surgeon, but some make them bleed more than others. Um, we've also got risk with neck surgery of venous air embolism because of the positioning. We have a risk of neurodeterioration. Um, you know, no disrespect to any surgeon, but we're operating on a, on a damaged area. It is quite possible, particularly with a high cervical disc, that we could finish up with a patient that is neurologically worse after surgery, and that could go as far as not being able to breathe. It's uncommon, but I've seen it many times. It does happen. In addition, these guys, they don't have the airway of the lurcher. Might get a five millimeter, five and a half millimeter endotracheal tube into this. It's gonna have a long MRI on surgery. It's gonna be anesthetized for hours. There is a significant risk of airway obstruction and recovery. There's a risk of regurgitation in recovery. I'm worried, prepared for a long night. The owners need to be aware that this is not entirely straightforward. So that's kind of what I'm talking about in terms of risk assessment. From a neurologist's point of view, we've got two dogs with neck problems. From an anaesthetist's point of view, we've got two very, very different candidates. Um, next slide, please, Laurent. So um, is something that you know many of you have to encounter even if you don't particularly want to do anesthesia if you literally do just want to keep them still but this is a review that was written by a couple of my colleagues at Davies um, 
Fran Downing and Sarah Gibson, and it is really readable. It's um, free access, so you don't need to be, you don't need to subscribe. Subscribe. It's an open access article. Gives you a really good overview of how to sensibly anaesthetize a brachycephalic. So the things to take into consideration with the hope that whatever happens by the end of the anaesthesia, the dog is not in a worse situation than where we started. So that's my lecture on comorbidity. Excellent. Well, as, as neurologists, what are some of the issues arising from our um, sick and, and emergency cases that, that uh, you would like to bring some attention to? Well, I guess I'm here because it's a neurology thing. So, Lauren, could I have the next slide, please? Um, there are lots of things that lots of presentations that I, I, I'm concerned about. You know, we're doing complex spinal surgery. We've got risks associated with that. We've got severe neuromuscular disease. We've got risks associated with that. But in terms of, I guess, the biggie is intracranial disease. Intracranial disease is something that um, we see manifestations of on a very regular basis. Um, and from my point of view, any animal with intracranial disease could potentially be a problem. Next slide, please, Laurent. When I'm talking about intracranial disease, I guess we're really talking about um, space-occupying lesions because from the point of view of what's going on inside your head, if you have a space-occupying lesion, by definition, um, you've got a change in the intracranial anatomy and potentially in a change in the intracranial physiology and a raised intracranial pressure. So if we think about it, the cranium's a pretty rigid vault. It's a box, um, you know, and it contains stuff. And that stuff is basically um, non-compliant brain tissue, um, blood in order to perfuse that brain, and CSF. Um, so, you know, I don't know much about neuroanatomy, but I need to know that they all need to coexist in a given space. If one of those elements increases in volume, so for example, we have edema secondary to, um, well, secondary to all sorts of things, but we have edema secondary to a mass, we have, inflammatory brain disease where the brain tissue itself is impacted we have a large space occupying lesion all of those will potentially increase the volume inside that um, cranial vault the volume can't really do much so if something has to give either we lose our csf gets pushed out our intracranial perfusion decreases or ultimately we can potentially get herniation of um brain material and if we look at the bottom right it just shows you a relationship between intracranial pressure and intracranial volume that so you get a pretty linear relationship initially and then you get a point at which um, everything basically decompensates um, and intracranial pressure rises very very quickly and that's something that everybody is worried about both neurologists and anaesthetists because we're aiming to get a help you get a diagnosis by anaesthetizing this patient but if we do things wrong, the things that we do during anesthesia um, can actually take a patient from just to the left of that inflection point to the right of it. And when that happens, if the brain herniates, um, kind of it's game over. So we really don't want to make ourselves desperately unpopular with a neurologist by doing that. So it's our attempt to try and um, use i guess use pharmacology and use management to manage intracranial physiology could i have the next slide please so 
this is a really big topic, but I just thought I'd cover it kind of briefly just to um, give you a bit of an overview of what's important. And it's not so much how you do it. We'll talk about that a little bit, but what you need to think about. Um, there are, I guess, there are three real drivers. Cerebral perfusion pressure, which is essentially the driving pressure to deliver blood to the brain. And that really has to be prioritized in all neuro patients all the time. So whatever anybody else says about managing anything else, it is the perfusion pressure to the brain that is, has been most correlated with outcome, if you look at that. And that perfusion pressure is determined by what the blood pressure is, taking away the intracranial pressure. So clearly, the higher the intracranial pressure, the higher the perfusion pressure needs to be in order to um, maintain adequate perfusion and hence the higher the mean arterial pressure needs to be. So um, we need to think about that. CMR is basically cerebral metabolic rate for oxygenation, which basically in any other terms means that the brain needs blood because the blood carries oxygen, because the brain uses a lot of oxygen. Um, that's about as much as an anaesthetist that I need to know. But we need to deliver oxygen and we need to deliver enough oxygen. Um, and we need to deliver enough oxygen in enough blood, but not too much blood. If you think about what I said about the cranial vault, if you've got too much blood in there, it just increases the pressure. So we need to make sure there's enough blood going to the brain, but not so much blood that it just makes the intracranial pressure situation worse. So we're thinking about blood going to the brain, blood delivering oxygen to the brain. Next slide, please. So the brain needs oxygen and it needs a substrate, which is glucose for aerobic metabolism, given by enough but not too much blood. So what can affect what is enough but not too much blood? Well, there's various things um, and those can be mitigated and managed by anesthesia. And it's important that all these auto-regulatory processes, we need to be aware of that if we've had trauma, ischemia, a lot of it is lost, so everything becomes slightly pressure dependent. But I guess there's various fairly kind of basic but important take home messages. A lack of oxygen causes um, blood vessels to vasodilate. So we've got an attempt to deliver blood, a hypoxic response. If your levels of oxygen are pretty much normal, then um, your the blood vessels will behave fairly well. In terms of ventilation, if your patient has too much CO2 in their blood, so too much carbon dioxide, which is that carbon dioxide is retained because they're not breathing well, that carbon dioxide causes the blood vessels to dilate and delivers too much blood to the brain. So what we're trying to do with a lot of our management is actually to make sure that cerebral perfusion pressure and cerebral blood flow are adequate, but not excess. So that'd be a couple of kind of physiological take homes. As I said, we don't have that much time, but if we could go on to the next slide. So how does this play out in reality? What are we actually gonna do with these patients? Well, as I said, we need to make sure that they're not hypoxic. So um, oxygen if needed, especially if they're a polytrauma patient, I'm not gonna go into that in vast amounts of detail, but I would say no nasal prongs. You don't want them coughing, sneezing or causing more problems. 
manage hypoperfusion. This is really important. Laurent and I have lost count of the number of patients that we've seen that have had lots of drugs to try and reduce intracranial pressure, but at the same time, they have no blood pressure. So we need to make sure we manage that driving pressure to the brain, and that might require quite a lot of volume support. Um, we need to make sure that they're ventilating properly. Now, if they've had head trauma, they might not be breathing very well. That's something we need to support ourselves. And we need to think about specific management of intracranial pressure. These are all things that are basically happening in a dynamic manner from the time that the patient presents to us. There's lots of other things that we think about. And at this point, I'm going to give a plug to Laurent and Simon's book, the Neuroemergencies book, which has been out a few years now, but has got some really good stuff on how to manage these cases on initial presentation, because it's what you do in that small window of opportunity that makes um, a big difference. Um, if we're now going to anaesthetize these patients, we need to make sure, as I've gone on about, that the tissue is getting enough oxygen and that tissue is getting enough oxygen because it has enough blood being driven by an adequate pressure. And we need to give the intra make sure the intracranial pressure is controlled. So all those things, you know, we've already said. The next question then is, uh, uh, how do we actually do this? Could I have the next slide, please, Laurent? So assuming we've had a pretty good go at stabilisation, um, we've got an animal who has, who's not hypoxic. Blue is a bad colour. Um, try and make sure that they are adequately oxygenating. Um, that they are ventilating reasonably, that they have an adequate mean arterial pressure, and that might require volume support. It might even require blood, depending on what's happened to the amount of hemoglobin they've got. It might require pressure support. It might require inotrope support. It really depends on how sick they are. But anaesthesia is not going to help any of these things other than controlling ventilation. So we need to ideally... Um, get as much stuff of that under control as possible. So how every case is different, um, but there are a few basic tenants that are really important um, and how to do the best job with these guys. Uh, to start with, any pre-anesthetic medication, ideally administered IV, be short acting. We don't want this patient sedated for six hours. Laurent gets quite upset if you can't do a neuro assessment pretty quickly to make sure that things are going well. Don't upset your neurologist is a good take-home message as well. So IV, short-acting pre-meds. I would avoid azepromazine. It's a vasodilator. It acts for a very long time. Avoid high-dose alpha-2 agonists. Now, I'm not saying avoid alpha-2s. That's an entire other lecture in itself. And they are widely used in human neuroanesthesia, but at very, very small doses. And avoid morphine because coughing and vomiting are a really bad thing. Um, Pre-oxygenate by mask, um, ideally tight fitting so that you can ventilate if necessary. Position them carefully. You want the head up about 30 degrees. That will optimize your cerebral perfusion and minimize your intracranial pressure. But make sure that you are not forcing them into this position. You know, stressing a cat to get it in this position is somewhat suboptimal. Um, your induction of anesthesia should be really smooth and high quality. You want to give your um, drugs IV to effect. Um, to be honest, whatever you're most familiar with is probably a good thing. Um, we can debate ketamine in the questions if people want to talk about it, but high quality induction, rapid attainment of airway without coughing, 
You may want to use spray local or IV lidocaine. Both work pretty well. Um, we've got various studies looking at those. Get your tube in and get control of your uh, ventilation. So that could be using a ventilator or it just could be using manual, um, using um, a manual way of squeezing the bag, basically. We'd be looking, if you can, to maintain anesthesia with sevoflurane vaporized in oxygen and air, no nitrous. Uh, you could use propofol VRI. Avoid isoflurane, definitely avoid halothane. If you can, I appreciate not everybody's in the same situation as me, but there are multiple reasons for that. But ultimately, either sevoflurane or propofol um, have better what are called demand delivery kinetics in the brain. So basically they mean that they they don't affect cerebral um, vascular tone as much or cerebral oxygen uh, demand delivery kinetics. Um, we need to keep this patient anaesthetized and we don't want to use loads of SIBO. A, it's expensive, which upsets my boss, and B, um, we want to keep the anaesthesia nice and stable. So we give low-dose opioids but short-acting stuff. So I'm thinking about maybe if you've got it, a little bit of fentanyl, you could consider butorphanol, even Pepidine, but that has to go IM. Don't use anything like buprenorphine. Again, it's really long acting. It looks like the wrong first thing to do. Ventilate to normal capnia. Normal capnia, not massively aggressive, but keep your CO2 within normal limits, ideally low end of normal. Um, we can talk further if people want strategies to manage problems with intracranial pressure. But um, Potentially the use of hypertonic saline solutions, potentially mannitol. We talked about position, we talked about fluids and ventilation to normal capnia with ventilation strategies that um, don't use PEEP, they don't use positive end expiratory pressure and they maintain a fairly low peak inspiratory pressure which uh, has less effect on venous return. And we need to monitor these patients. This is the bit that's really important. Anesthesia is not chemical restraint. Um, it's perioperative medicine. That's what I'd like to elevate myself to, a perioperative medic. We need to monitor. We need to monitor pulse oximetry. We need to monitor non-invasive blood pressure and end hydral CO2. I would consider those a pretty much bare minimum because that gives us the data we need. Are we ventilating them effectively? Are we perfusing the tissue reasonably well? Are they maintaining their um, saturation? I'd also want ECG, temperature, inspired agents, invasive pressures, et cetera, et cetera. But I realize people don't necessarily have those. And if we're talking about intracranial surgery, then you need to do a good job because anesthesia really does affect outcome in these guys. Um, so that's kind of a nutshell. And I've come in at about 25 minutes. So, um, yeah, that's kind of neuro um, intracranial anesthesia in a, in a nutshell. Well, thank, thanks for that. Very, very concise. But um, I guess the question is, with all of the of what you've got going on there, is is it all necessary if you just wanted to put patient into an MRI if we weren't talking about surgery? Um, I mean, we all have to make compromises, but um, there are plenty of cases that I can remember, a couple that stand out where we've anaesthetized them as if they didn't have something going on in their brain and they subsequently were found out to have so and their recoveries and their general um, progress after anaesthesia was not very good. 
So I think, you know, you're managing an extremely vulnerable organ, you know, neurologists are quite worried about brains. So I think, you know, you're basically just working with the physiology in there. So it's just about taking due care and attention, basically, because if these go wrong, they can go catastrophically wrong. If you're um, if your dog with a brain tumour herniates in MRI, well, it you know, completely herniates. It's too late. You can't even think about options for the owner because, you know, it, it's an anaesthetic mortality. So I would say do the best job you can. It's not always going to be perfect, but it does make a difference. Attention to detail really does. All right. Well, what, what would be your take home messages then, your summary of this um, for the non-anesthetists that, that are listening? I guess um, think about the whole patient, not just the neurological system. And that means think about the comorbidities that it's rocked up with and how we're going to manage those. Um, you know, think about uh, engaging with the owner with that, because, um, you know, the last thing we want is something like, you know, a French bulldog to, or maybe a pug to have an MRI to prove that it's got something that you're not going to be doing surgery on and then it, to spend the next week regurgitating and the owner being extremely distressed. So, you know, just be aware of that. Um, that we're talking about chip on shoulder anaesthetist, perioperative medicine, not chemical restraint. There is a very big difference, um, you know. Just think about the physiology. You guys are really good at thinking about physiology and a logical approach. That's all anaesthesia is, just a logical approach. It's just a, di a different logical approach. Um, and that, you know, good anaesthesia contributes to positive outcomes we know that on an anecdotal basis from our own cases but we know that in a much bigger way from a lot of the human data that's coming out so you know it, it's something that goes along with being a good clinician all right so well, thank, thank you very much for for that um i know i realize that it's very difficult in 30 minutes to put everything together as a um, do's and don'ts a summary of of the anesthetic pitfalls of the neurologic case but i think you've done a fantastic job there in uh, in bringing out the most important points i'm going to hand you back to laurent because no doubt we've got a, a few questions that um uh, people have, have sent in. So hand you back and thanks again for uh, for what you've done so far. Thank you and uh, feel free to put your question in the comment box. Um, so we've got going to put the first question. Do you use, let me put it there, do you use manitol or hypertonic cellide in the context of raised intracranial pressure? For example, you've got a dog um, with brain tumor or an MRI look like he's herniating. Which one do you use? And why? Uh, there's a question, um, subject to a very recent review. Um, uh, there is um, there is not particularly really strong evidence to support one over the other. Generally, there is evidence from humans in various different um, things like in subarachnoid hemorrhage, in um, traumatic brain injury, um, there's definitely, there is evidence of hypertonic saline being beneficial. The other issue is that we call hypertonic saline, that could be anything from 3% um, sodium chloride to 23% sodium chloride. So we need to think about what we're actually talking about. We actually do use both. Um, and because we, I wouldn't use hypertonic saline in a patient that already is either volume overloaded or has a really high sodium which are kind of things that we do get presented with um, as well. So mannitol is potentially slightly safer in those cases, whereas um, 
there is evidence that hypertonic saline is better if the patient's at risk of acute kidney injury. So I would say both. But that said, the big recent human review suggests that, you know, if you haven't got one, then use the other. But neither in the human literature are um, they both impact intracranial pressure and impact um, the amount of edema that's there, but neither of them have a massive effect on outcome. So I think it's really important that the thing that's been shown to have the biggest effect on outcome is maintaining cerebral perfusion pressure. So don't obsess about that, particularly in the traumatic brain injury cases where you really need to think about global hypoperfusion as being a problem. Does that make sense? Very good. Next one, do you use um, steroid IV in the case of head trauma if all the other um, treatment modality have been... Uh, we don't, and um, you guys are probably know more of the more recent literature than me, but essentially um, you don't want to create a, a situation of um, uh, an increase in uh, glucose metabolism and potentially lactate, which will damage the cells itself. Um, so... Um, no, it's not something that um, we would do. Um, there are... it's, putting, it's putting oil on the fire. Would be the yeah, best I mean, absolutely. It's not, a, you know, it, it's just, it's not indicated. Um, and, you know, we, we struggle enough with, hi with hyperglycemia in some of these patients anyway without putting steroids in there as well. Do you use local anesthesia, lidocaine, for emilaminectomy? Um, we don't tend to, but we do use it um, use it quite a bit. And I've done quite a few of these cases with Laurent with dorsal laminectomies um, at the LS where you're digging around at the nerve roots where we've done, um, we've applied local directly and that's been effective, but we, it needs to be done in a kind of in consideration because one of my one of my neurosurgeons will not allow us to do it because they're too worried about um, the effect of the, um, the local uh, afterwards even though lidocaine is pretty short acting so certainly where we've used it around nerve roots i think the wrong would agree that it's been effective in those cases where we're, we're doing that kind of stuff there is better evidence actually there's a paper published from dick whites from a few years ago for epidural morphine being applied directly and it has um, a much longer duration of action um, I would, however, avoid, we have no data on AM cervical stuff, so we're talking about TL um, stuff here. I'd be relatively concerned about cranial spread if you're going to think about doing anything in the cervical area. Your favorite drug, what is your opinion of using small dose of ketamine in patients with seizure? It's not really the topic, but it would be interesting to hear your view, I know. I mean, we wouldn't, I certainly wouldn't use it. I, we tend to discuss these cases and we'd use it as a third or fourth line drug. I wouldn't be using it as a first line drug. Okay. That said, um, we use loads of ketamine and we use it in every single hemilaminectomy and almost dorsal laminectomies and uh, ventral slots and anything else I can, I can give it to. Um, and the basis on that is that it is a proven preventive um, analgesic and there's data just come out of the US showing that chronic pain is present in dogs that, in a proportion of dogs that have undergone a hemilaminectomy. And I was just interested to note that there weren't, they weren't using ketamine, so whether it makes any difference or not, we don't know. But certainly, I think Laurent is a big fan of ketamine in terms of reducing the amount of opioid we use, um, the amount of things like um, constipation, regurgitation. So I, I, in terms of ketamine in seizures, um, 
not a big fan in terms of ketamine in sur neurosurgery, a very big fan. I love ketamine for surgery. Um, we see if there's an, any other question posted. I've got two questions. The first one is, um, I got a friend, um, he's getting a bit yeah. old, he's been trying to be a neurologist for the last 23 years, he's getting a bit slow. Here we go. And, uh, he has tendency when we do webinar to blank a bit. It's not, so, not fair to pick on Jack if he's not here. Yeah. I, have to, I have to like, you know, prod him when we, when we do talk like that. If there's anything I could give him to try to improve oh, I can think of a few things, but they might not be suitable for public broadcast. But yeah, there's a few um, cerebral vasodilators out there that might be might be worthwhile. I think he's tried a few vasodilators. But not <laughs> 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 okay. uh, the other question is, which of the two was the worst nightmare to work with? <laughs> what, you or oh, Jack? Between me, between me and Simon. not here at the moment, but yeah. Between me and Simon, which one was the worst? And you have any, any case any case in mind? I do remember one just after I started at the trust, having come from Edinburgh, that was bleeding, shall we say, inverted commas a lot. And I said, Laurent, um, are you okay if I transfuse this? I'm a bit worried about it. And you said, pardon the language, my dear, you do well that you like, just keep it alive for me. And I thought that's the beginnings <laughs> of a healthy relationship. That's on the very you know, the way uh, I tend to communicate. Um, there is no more question. Louise, thank you so much. It's lovely to see you again. Um, I hope we're not going to wait another 18 years to have you back. Uh, <laughs> um, but as always, you know, thank you. And uh, as I say, Louise is a very safe pair of hands. If you, you know, a surgeon, uh, at least you can focus on your surgery without worrying about you know anything else without a doubt. Simon, I'll let you give the last word. I think it's only fair um, after you know the the nice point I make about you know oh, you no. distributor. And, no, uh, I, I, I couldn't. I couldn't, I couldn't possibly be so childish, but I do. I do want to. Uh, <laughs> I do want to thank Louise for for coming on. Excellent, excellent synopsis there. Next time we probably have you on to discuss transfusion medicine, as as that one case that you remember, Louise, was actually one of like eighty five percent of Laurent's hemilaminectomies. <laughs> So I, I, honestly, I, I had a ventral slot with him bleed to a flat art line. <laughs> yeah. Went home two days later. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very, thank you very much. Really appreciate it. It's good to see you again. Thanks. And thank you very much for the invitation. And I hope everybody learned something of use from that. I'm Thanks sure for so next week we'll take a break. There will be no uh, Facebook Live, but then we'll move on in two weeks' time. Um, we will start our monthly journal club. Um, and uh, after that, we'll have a neuroimaging um, Facebook Live. Uh, that will be early July. So thanks a lot, everyone. And uh, hope you have a lovely evening. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks, everyone.